Over the weekend, Jay Wright, normally a sharp dresser, maybe the sharpest in college basketball, wore a hoodie, a hooded sweatshirt in his loss to the Baylor Bears. Uh, Brendan, first of all, what did you think of the look of Jay Wright? It was a bit of a shock to see him going so dressed down. And second, what options of all the attires from coaches would you wear if you were a head college basketball coach at the Division One level? Yeah, I do wonder whether he's going to go from GQJ to J Crew J based on the uh, the hoodie. Um, you know, I, I've always been fond of a good shawl collar. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I would never wear a shawl collar. Um, I, I, maybe I'm boring. I, I like a nice classy suit. I don't like a three piece. Ed Cooley likes to go to the three piece a lot. I think I would be. Uh, I wouldn't do the three piece. But um, suit, bright colored tie for sure. Maybe even a bright colored shirt. I would definitely go with the same color collar and cuffs as the shirt because we know that that Bob Kraft look is just uh, asking to be, um, oh, yeah. you know, memed. Yeah. What about you? Uh, I might go, I might go suit no tie and then have the ability to take the jacket off to coach. I feel like I'd be a more demonstrative coach than uh, uh, than I want to be wearing a sport coat. I always feel a little mm-hmm. stiff when I'm wearing that jacket. I don't know if I'd want to wear the it. Brad's- the Brad Stevens, the right? Brad That's Steven, what that, yeah, Brad Stevens. Yeah. Steve Kerr has done it. I feel like Steve Kerr, once he had the back injuries, like, you know what? Screw it. I'm not going to wear a tie anymore. So he gets away with it. Uh, I would definitely not go sweater. I'd be too hot. Uh, so that's the Bob Knight look and the uh, I just Bob feel like Huggins the, the Huggins, the Bob Huggins uh, windbreaker. How does he? I mean, he does sweat. Like, maybe you should consider a change in attire there. Um, and I would try to wear, like, I would probably wear not hard shoes, but, like, some nice-looking expensive sneakers that – um. Uh, that are relaxing but still go well with a nice slacks. You, and one thing I remember, the, pretty much the only thing I remember from the book A March to Madness by John Feinstein, which I read in like eighth grade, is that the schools pay for the suits for the coaches. So they don't have to, you don't have to worry about rolling out your own money for these, uh, these outfits. What, one note on the, uh, on the nice sneakers to go with the suit. Yeah. Um, if you remember, well, I think they still do it every year, the coaches versus cancer week where yeah. the, all the coaches wear sneakers on the sidelines. Um, it's and in, in part, like you see coaches wearing sneakers with suits, and it stands out. It's like, oh, they're wearing sneakers. What's that about? Oh, coaches versus cancer. Maybe I should consider being more aware of cancer and research and donating money. I, you get the kind of the idea. Well, Tim Welsh was very into kind of making sure he looked good on the sideline. The former Providence college coach, and he would wear like black, like trimmed sneakers that you couldn't even be able to tell that they were sneakers. I think just defeated the purpose. But he did look he did look better than like Tom Izzo does when he's wearing like white sneakers with green trim uh, on Coach versus Cancer Day. Imagine if he, dev- if he devoted that much attention to detail to other aspects of Providence coaching, he might still be there. Or pro- to aspects of like calling an Uber and not getting pulled over for drunk driving <laughs> when he, he just got announced to the Hofstra head coach and is immediately removed from uh, the position and then has to do ESPNU games between South Florida and Tulane for the next 15 years. <laughs> that's that's a, the, death pen- the college basketball death penalty. <laughs> the rest of the way. Double two bonus as well. Right, two free throws. Both teams will be on the double bonus, so we'll have two the rest of the way. Welcome to episode three of season two of the Double Bonus Podcast, along with Brendan DeRocher. I'm Tom Borstein, Brendan recording from a uh, coffee shop. I'm recording mm-hmm. from the mediocre state of texas it's a holiday weekend we're a little bit later than we would have early in the week so we're kind of in the middle of the, some of these tournaments but we have a lot to get to brendan uh as we come to you from i think this is our first central time pacific time time zone we've done eastern time hong kong time we've done eastern <laughs> time pacific time but we've done 
Central Europe time and Eastern time, but this is our first Central time, Pacific time podcast. Yes, this is also the first time I'm podcasting from the uh, neighborhood of uh, one of the greatest uh, uh, dynasties in the history of college basketball in Westwood in California with the um, UCLA Bruins, who apparently weren't the best blue and yellow team recently when they lost to Hofstra. Uh, but there will be better times for, uh, for UCLA. Um, those times are not uh, apparently this past weekend. But it, it is great to like sit in the shadow of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar looking out on Westwood Boulevard from uh, a classic Pete's Coffee um, as we record here on, on a Tuesday afternoon. How's the, how's the Wi-Fi there? Some free, some free pub for them. Yeah, it seems pretty good, I got to say. They don't even make you enter your email, so you don't have to get like uh, a lot of reminders and like Pete's Coffee uh, uh, things that, uh, you know. So I, bought a, I bought a drink. I think it would be unethical to come and use Pete's, Coffee, uh, Pete's Coffee's Wi-Fi without actually um, patronizing Pete's Coffee. But, uh, but I did buy a drink, and uh, now I'm ready to talk about some college basketball. Great. Uh, so let's get the uh, off-the-court stuff out of the way first. Uh, James Wiseman suspended for 12 games by the NCAA, which was a bit of a punitive suspension in the sense that he probably would have gotten nine games, but because Memphis decided to play him when the NCAA informed at Memphis, he was likely ineligible. Uh, they threw on three extra games for good measure. Uh, for those of you unfamiliar with the case, uh, Wiseman, when he was in high school, uh, and Penny Hardaway was the coach of uh, Memphis East High School, I believe, uh, Penny Hardaway... Uh, paid to relocate uh, Wiseman's family to Memphis so he could go to that school. Uh, the NCAA said that was the actions of a booster. Um, now, of course, Hardaway's head coach and Wiseman ended up in Memphis, and so he got a 12-game suspension. So, Brendan, your thoughts, A, on the suspension, which seems pretty uh, in line with what uh, – the nine-game seems pretty in line with uh, what's been going on before. And also, what are your thoughts on Memphis, how they handled it, and how they basically kind of – it seems like if they just not played him, they would have gotten nine games. Instead, they just kind of dug themselves a hole and got got themselves three extra games. Yeah, it seemed like Memphis was trying to um, piggyback on all of the dislike of the NCAA that is prevalent across the college basketball in particular, even seemingly more than college football for some reason. But um, the NCAA has obviously been laughed at and vilified in recent years for the way that it treats student athletes in many cases rightfully so um but as long as the as college basketball is is putatively an an amateur sport there needs to be rules to keep it amateur and these rules are in place for good reasons given that fact um and it seemed like memphis was trying to win in the court of public opinion uh but Again, the NCAA is a voluntary organization. You don't have to play college basketball. There are a lot of options. I mean, if you were a college football player, it might actually be a, a better argument. There aren't really any other options to play, to make money playing college football. Um, and th- maybe this is the last stand of the NCAA, and then in a couple of years we'll have all kinds of uh, uh, likeness rules and patient players be being paid and all that kind of stuff. But uh, at least for now, the rule is enforced in a way that um, is fairly uniform and there was a pe- penalty for the for Memphis kind of thumbing its nose at uh, James Wiseman and uh, you know I, I'm fine with it and I, I'm not a fan I haven't been a fan of the Memphis program since Penny Hardaway was added I don't like the the way he's gone about his business and kind of calling out coaches constantly um, I don't root for them I hope they lose often 
and I'm not sad about the fact that James Wiseman's suspended for 10 games or whatever, nine more games. Yeah, I remember he had that run-in with Rick Barnes last year in the Tennessee game. Uh, just the practical implications, then we can go on to more basketball. So they played him the first three games of the year. South Carolina State won that game, obviously, easily. Illinois-Chicago won that game easily. Played him in the Oregon game, lost that game, and then, then they benched him. So basically, they won two, three games. Two games they would have won without him anyway. Then they lost Oregon with him, so it didn't matter that he played. And now they're going to lose him for games that they would have otherwise had him for, including games against Tennessee, Georgia, and Wichita State, which they really could use him for. I don't think he's eligible to return until South Florida on January 12th. So not mm-hmm. the most practical move by Memphis either. And just kind of arrogant and kind of like – almost like – it seems like an emotional move to try to have played him. And when we all knew how – it seemed like we all knew how it was going to – come out like even Kansas which had the same situation they did not play Billy Preston last year they did not play uh, Sylvia D'Souza last year they just waited it out and that's where we are so Memphis maybe the Ken Palm preseason rankings uh, when they uh, when they had Memphis lower than everyone thought maybe they knew this was coming maybe <laughs> maybe they knew that Memphis would be overreactive and play them but now they're down to 41 in Ken Palm and not looking like the uh, top top team that people some people are arguing they should be uh, in the preseason yeah, in Memphis's defense, they did have a good win against Mississippi on um, Saturday by right. one at home. Mississippi, not that highly rated in Ken Palm, just 53rd, but um, coming off of an NCAA tournament appearance last year and uh, considered by some to be a top 20 or top 30 good team. So that's an impressive win without one of your best players. Um, and they got DJ Jeffries and uh, Precious Achua both had big games. Uh, Achua had 25 points and uh, DJ Jeffries had 23. And I know you noted that uh, in our notes that Lester Quinones, who's a starter for Memphis, he was injured. He only played nine minutes in that game. And I'm not sh- Do you have a status on how long uh, he's going to be think, out? No, I don't. But let me check really quickly. But I know, I think he hurt his hand. That's Yeah, one of the officials in that game, uh, Gerald Williams, the former uh, New York Yankee and Tampa Bay Ray. Um, not really, probably. It would be great. It would be awesome if that was true. I, I'd probably be a story written. Uh, Gerald Williams um, only I, refereed nine games this year. Um. Yeah, let's see where. Oh, up to six weeks, that could be bad. So that's mm-hmm. like the middle of January. So he could become early, early January. It could be back right when when Wiseman's back. So we'll see. Uh, yeah, broken yeah, right hand. At least a month. That's, yeah, that's not good um, for him and not good for Memphis. And uh, you know, I have to give credit to Penny Hardaway as much as I kind of, I just sort of trashed him. Just gave my perspective on him a few, few minutes ago. The Memphis team that he took over last year uh, was not supposed to be very good, and they overperformed, actually kind of on the fringes of NCAA tournament bubble conversation late in the season. Um, and then this year's team without um, uh, James Wiseman and now without Lester Quinones uh, was able to win a game against Mississippi that they probably should have lost considering those that circumstance. And... Um, and we'll see how they play in those next few games. Georgia, they're all all—they're kind of all winnable games in, in a sense. I mean, Tennessee is, is not amazing. The game is on the road. Um, Georgia at home is certainly winnable. Wichita State away is a tough game, but certainly also winnable. NC State in a neutral is winnable. There, aren't, is, there isn't a couple games there where you're like, well, if they had Wiseman, they could win that game. But now, I don't think they have a chance. So uh, I think they'll pull through okay, and they'll still get a top six or eight seed in the NCAA tournament. Um, based on how they've played so far this year, which has been pretty solid. They're only lost to Oregon by eight, an Oregon team that is uh, has been one of the better teams in college basketball so far this season. Yeah, they should be okay, but it's I still, given the hype around that freshman class and Parney Hardaway, they may be a little bit under what uh, some people thought. 
Uh, now let's go on the court, Brendan, but let's talk big picture. Uh, there have been some new changes this year. There's a deeper three-point line. There's more reviewing of flopping. There's more replays, of course. The referee jerseys are there. Um, they're kind of like cross between the NBA referee jerseys and the uh, NFL football officials. I do not like them. Um, let's just leave it at that. I don't know what was wrong with the black and white stripes without the shoulder all black, but I guess we have to change it for some reason. And you can't even say it's for merchandise sales because no one buys referee jerseys. So I don't know what they were doing. So anyway, let's just leave that there. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, what, what else? What struck you from the games played this year? There's also been a lot of low-scoring games, uh, mm-hmm. probably in some part due to uh, Tony Bennett in Virginia. But uh, Ken Palm had a very good article about it. It seems like it's not that big a deal, but then it actually is a pretty big deal when you factor in the faster shot clock or the shorter shot clock that came in a few years ago. And uh, just, you know, even though it's a slight change, it's a, it's a pretty marked change nonetheless. Yeah, you, you could say that, oh, it's early in the season. Um, we just wait for the season to play out. But uh, as Ken Pomeroy often says, that the trends that you see over the first few weeks of the season tend to be indicative of what you see over the course of the year. And especially something with scoring, scoring actually tends to decrease as the season goes on as teams play a slower pace in conference play in closer games, as well as uh, the defenses being a little bit better uh, generally as the season goes on. Um, and shooting stats like free throw percentage and three-point percentage don't tend to improve across the season, even though you might expect that it would. Looking at the trends, uh, last year we trended down, actually, in both tempo by half a possession per game as well as um, uh, efficiency, offensive efficiency by a point per 100 possessions. And this year we've actually trended back up in tempo, which is the fastest tempo so far we've seen since 1998, and the numbers only go back to 1997 on Ken site. But yet the efficiency is down by four and a half points. And we're seeing that primarily in turnovers being higher. This is the this is the highest turnover year we've had at 19.8% if it stays that way. And it's more than a, almost a percentage higher than any other year since then, since 2013. Um, and we've seen free throw rate decrease. This is the lowest free throw rate that Ken Palm's ever recorded at 31.9 free throws per 100 field goal attempts. And free throw rate is something that tends to go down as the season goes on because usually the whistles are a little bit tighter at the start of the season. We've seen three-point percentage drop by about a point and a half, um, and we've seen free throw percentage drop by about a point, point two, and we've seen two-point percentage drop by 1.3. It, it's, it's, it's kind of strange. Like It doesn't seem like there's a good explanation for why shooting would be worse and free throws would be down and turnovers would be up. Um, I don't know. Do you have an explanation? I think, well, three-point shooting obviously is down because the line's farther back, so that makes sense. And then maybe... Mm. Two-point shooting's down because teams are not as disincentivized to take a long two because the three blind is farther back. Uh, I don't have any idea why free throw shooting would also go down. Maybe it's a crisis of confidence. But no, that seems just like a weird coincidence. Uh, I mean, the flow of the game, in theory, would be better with a lower free throw rate just because that means there are fewer whistles. Um, but the games have been kind of... Um, some. There have been some notable ugly games. Virginia-Syracuse... Um, Virginia's, I mean, it's tough to say it's ugly because they play such great defense, but they also play really slow, so it's tough to necessarily appreciate for everyone out there. But, uh, yeah, I think the teams will adjust to the three-point line, and uh, we'll see what happens. Maybe the shot selection will get better. The coaches will figure it out. Their analytics guys will figure it out. Um, yeah, we're, what are we, like a little more than a tenth of the way through the college basketball season, so it's not like we're dealing with a totally insignificant data size here. So it's kind of like in baseball when the ball was juiced, people knew, or excuse me, the ball was... Uh, had more home run, uh, pro home run capabilities. We knew right away. It was more it uniform. Was very, uh, yeah, it was very clear, very early, and it did not change. So, yeah. 
Yeah, the points per game has gone down by almost two points per game, um, and that would be the lowest since the shot clock was uh, dropped from twenty uh, from thirty five to thirty seconds. Um, the three point percentage at thirty two point eight again is it's pretty far out now. It would be the lowest percentage on. Ken Palm's record, which goes back to the beginning of the three-point line, so that would be the lowest three-point percentage ever. But yet, it's still right now as the second highest free throw, a three-point rate ever. Thirty-seven point five percent of all field goal attempts are three-pointers, which is tied for the second highest of all time from two years ago, behind only last year. So, despite the fact that three-point percentage has decreased, the rate of them being taken has barely uh, nudged down at all. Um, and which is not, I don't think it's too surprising, but it is part of why we're almost two points down from where we were before. Uh, and the other one last thing on this, you know, obviously fewer free throws is better for a visual perspective unless, sorry, as long as there, there are fewer free throws because there are fewer fouls being committed. If there are fewer free throws because there are, um, there's not being called, then it could actually lead to less freedom of movement and actually uglier visual games. Yeah. Um, we'll have to see how the officials are calling it. Uh, and see how it goes as the season goes on. But um, if people always seem to have uh, sweeping generalizations about the college basketball season early on, and then it kind of just ends up being the same thing. You're kind of at the mercy of how the game's called. Any any crew can call it tighter, call it uh, or call it looser, and you kind of go with the go with the flow. But we'll still be watching. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the other rules changes, too, I want to note. The flopping actually maybe led to an Xavier win over Missouri State a couple of weeks back. Um, and there's now more replays for things like basket interference. And I think in the last two minutes of a game, there's even more things that you could replay. Um, I think Tom and I are on the same page, as well as maybe Ken Pomeroy, in that I think I'd be okay with no replays at all. I mean, it would stink to, like, to see a call, a, a really important call go against your team. But I think... What my perspective is, is that this is college basketball, like all sports, is entertainment. And entertainment, especially when the NCAA is making a lot of money off of TV, is basically a TV show. It's a TV product. And yes, the results matter. We need fidelity of results. We can't have, like, you know, games being fixed and, and unreliable results because of, for various reasons. But if you're going to the point of having games extended and games delayed and games paused by replays, then it might uh, subvert the quality of the viewing experience to a point that it actually doesn't improve the f- fidelity of the actual outcome of the game. Yeah, we definitely don't need to be reviewing flopping in-game. If you think flopping's a problem, come up with a point system where you flop three times, you get suspended, and that's it. Just do it and re- review it after the fact. We don't need to flop in the game. Just don't call it in the game. If you, think it's a, if you don't think it's a foul... Uh, as a referee, like you should be able to know what a flop is as an official. Don't call the foul, and then the NCAA can review it and then if, and assign a point to the player, and if you get the three or four points, whatever the standard is, you're suspended, and people will stop flopping. And I think it's fine to suspend a player one game if he flops three times in egregious fashion. And I agree with you, like these calls at the end of games, it's not even clear sometimes from the replay what's go- what the right call is, so why are we going to waste all this time on it? Plus, it changes how the game, uh, n- not so much in basketball as in other sports, but there's just the standard where it has to be clear to overturn on replay it doesn't really seem fair it just seems arbitrary so let's i would go with no replay the only sport i'm 100 percent okay with replaying is tennis because it happens right away and it's always right and it's we're almost 99 right and it's it's instantaneous so yeah mm-hmm. last uh, new rule change which i think most people probably haven't noticed but uh, you as a, a uniform uh connoisseur probably have i want to get your thoughts on the fact that before 
you had to have your name across the back of the jersey completely straight, like basically a straight edge across the bottom and top of the letters, and now there can be arching. Um, whereas in the past, apparently, it could only be straight, although the NCAA admitted when they changed the rule that some teams were in violation of the rule even before it was changed. Well, there are two types of arching in uh, the jersey. There's a radial arching and a vertical arching, so we won't go into the difference here. But um, um, I think it's fine. Whatever teams want to do. I don't really like the whole nameplate thing that happens a lot on baseball jerseys or used to happen a lot on baseball jerseys. Um, we've gone away from radial arching, I believe. Oh, no, sorry, we've gone away from vertically arching. Um, which is a nice touch, um, but it's okay. I'm glad the NCAA changed the rule. Give some familiar, give some uh, flexibility to the teams and their uniform looks. What's vertically? It's just a, it's a term like whether the letters are, if the letters vertical arching means all the letters are. Um, wait, one of them if vertical arch, all the letters are, uh, they're all straight up. So each letter is like a slightly different height as you go toward the middle of the name, and they get longer again. They're taller again as you go away. And radial arching, they're rotated slightly, so you can use the same lettering for each uh, name. So, like, if your name, Brendan DeRocher, the the D would be slightly bigger than the E, which would be slightly bigger than the S, then R, whatever the middle letter is, and they get bigger again at the end. Whereas if you do it um, radially arching, you just kind of sped them out, and they're not straight up. And um, and then they can be the same size. So, yeah. Hmm. Okay. I bet we did not think, our okay. listeners did not think we would get into a discussion of vertical arching versus radial arching on the... Uh, on the uh, podcast today. Yeah. Well, nearing the w- closer to the top of the vertical arch than at the beginning of the season are are some of the teams <laughs> that have been the biggest improvers to date. We're, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about the teams that have made the biggest improvements or the biggest declines uh, since the start of the season. This is based on efficiency margin on, on Ken Pomeroy's site, KenPom.com. Um, we chose efficiency margin instead of ranking, although we do list, we do have the rankings here that we'll, we'll reference because it's just harder to jump up or down in rankings when you're near the top, especially, but also potentially near the bottom, than it is to actually like improve your efficiency margin, although it's slightly harder, obviously, when you're on the edges to improve or, or to get worse from at the bottom. So let's start with the improvers. The top five teams most improved since the start of the season, according to Ken Palm efficiency margin, are first Stanford, second Arizona State, third Ohio State, fourth Arkansas, and fifth Virginia Tech. Those are it's only considered the six major conferences. They're not the f- top five overall in college basketball, but we want to focus on the major conferences here. Anything you see that stands out or surprising to you or, or any thoughts on these five teams? Uh, Virginia Tech obviously had a big win over Michigan State in Maui last night, uh, Monday night. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's huge for them. Uh, first year for Mike Young over there. Um and they were not picked very high in the ACC, so credit to them. Uh, of course, they lost to Duke last year in that heartbreaker in the uh, ACC tournament. Um, so, yeah, Mike Young comes over from Wofford and gets a pretty big win. They also beat uh, Clemson early on in the uh, ACC opener, of course, to start the season. And Stanford uh, really shooting the ball well. That's really their big uh, thing there. What are they, eighth in the country in three-point percentage? Um, they beat Oklahoma yesterday. Uh, they have a tough game against Butler tonight, so we'll see. Uh, and they play Kansas later in uh, at Maples Pavilion, so that'll be a tough game for the Jayhawks. Um, yeah, so credit to those two teams for coming out hot. Stanford did not play a very tough schedule until the Oklahoma game, so but the efficiency numbers don't lie, I suppose. Their defense has been very good. Uh, they're 36th mm-hmm. in defensive efficiency. Yeah, Arizona State is number two on that list, and they're interesting in part because they keep getting off to these really good starts. Um, if you look at the last few years, they, I think they were the last undefeated team uh, a couple years ago. 
Um, they've actually lost twice this year, but they, so they were they were twelve and zero two years ago before losing to Arizona. Um, and they, that year they beat Kansas. They started seven and zero last year, and both years they kind of scuffled down the stretch and ended up in the playing game. Last year they played that brutal playing game against St. John's that they won. This year they played St. John's again actually on Saturday in at Mohegan Sun in Connecticut and came back and pulled away for a thirteen point win and then had a lead against Virginia in the second half. I think it was like a 14-0 run, 17-0 run, something like that. And Virginia came back and won despite that um, to stay undefeated. But I think it's interesting that Bob Hur- Bobby Hurley tends to have his teams playing well early in the season. The question is, can they maintain it throughout the season? Uh, and they haven't really done that the last couple of years. Arkansas I find interesting. They haven't really played anyone great, although they did win at Georgia Tech uh, yesterday. And that was by one in overtime. Uh, they're now 22nd in the country, according to Kempom. And my favorite stat for them is they are first in the country in three-point field goal defense. Opponents are shooting 14.1% against them on three-pointers. Team sustainable. Year. Yeah, and um, Georgia Tech, continue, the, the team with the best three-point shooting game against them this season shot two for 10. And, and yesterday, Georgia Tech shot two for 11. So um, I, don't, I guess I have to check Eric Musselman if he has like a, a – track record for keeping teams to a really low three-point percentage. I'm looking at Nevada. Not really. I mean, he was, let's see, uh, he, he is consistently pretty good. Top 102nd is his worst ranking, and that was last year in the disappointing season for Nevada. The previous three seasons, he was between 14th and 53rd. So there seems to be something that Eric Busselman can do to uh, hold teams down in the three-point line. One thing he's tended to do is give up a lot of three-point attempts, although this year it has, hasn't been the case. Uh, so it's interesting. It's sustainable. I don't know. He's another first-year coach, much like um, uh, we mentioned. Oh, Mike Young, the former Wofford coach at Virginia Tech. So some success there from first-year coaches. Some other uh, notable teams that are not major conference teams that have first-year coaches, actually, too. Tulane is uh, in this list of the top 25 biggest improvers, uh, as well as San Francisco. So Tulane, San Francisco, of course, Kyle Smith, um, who's now at Washington State, is up to kind of an uneven start at Washington State. Um, but his replacement, his former assistant, um, is Todd Golden, and he's off to a 7-0 start against a very poor schedule. But nonetheless, they're up to 102 in Ken Palm. And then Tulane, which is coached by um, Ron Hunter, senior, in his first season at Tulane, He's off to a 5-1 and one start. Their only loss was at Mississippi State, and they had a win against Utah recently. Uh, he recent, he had earlier said in the season that um, actually at media day for uh, the AAC, they were picked last, and he said if, they, we, if we finish last in the AAC, he will walk on water. And so people were maybe rooting for them to finish last so they could <laughs> see this, but it looks like uh, Tulane now to 227th in the AAC. It's still second to last in rankings in the AAC ahead of only East Carolina, but it looks maybe a little bit less likely than when the season started that Tulane will actually finish last. Yeah, let's talk about Yale also, another one of those teams that you didn't mention. James Jones has been there. He's the dean of the Ivy League coaches right now. They've played already five overtime periods in eight games, including a triple overtime win over Siena. They lost to San Francisco on the road by five in overtime, of course, and they also uh, have road losses to Oklahoma State by seven and Penn State. Uh, which is ranked 30th in Ken Palm by two points. So even though they're only 5-3, and three, um, Yale's done pretty well. Their defense is amazing. Their effective field goal percentage against is just 39.6, which is 7th in the country. So James Jones, I feel like he never has had a dominant run in the Ivy League uh, like some of the other Ivy League dynasties have had, but they're always good, and uh, this year appears to be no exception. Yeah. Um, a couple other teams just that are on there you might be interested in. Furman, of course, a team that knocked off Villanova, had a great start of the season last year, is also imp- much improved this year from where they started. Um, 
UMass, which is a team that has not been good for many years, uh, is off to a surprisingly good start. Um, they're five and two. It, now I think it's the second year for Matt McCall. Um, he was third year. He was, of course, brought in after the previous coaching candidate backed out like minutes before he was to be introduced. Um, and their only losses are by uh, 12 to Virginia and by 15 to St. John's. But they have they beat Ryder, a pretty good team in Northeastern as well. So good job by Matt McCall trying to turn UMass back into at least a, a decent program. Now the biggest decliners. Now these are the teams that have fallen off the mo most since the start of the season. The biggest decliner is Texas A&M. Again, we have a theme of first-year coaches here, uh, just like we do the other one. Number two is Nebraska. Number three is Kentucky. And number four is Rutgers. And number five is Miami. What do you see there, Tom? Well, Texas A&M has somehow only played four games this year. Uh, unfortunately, one of them, and their only tough game, was a 30-point loss to uh, Gonzaga at home. Uh, so that probably uh, hurt the old rankings with Buzz Williams. And um, we see, I mean, we, you know, so we see uh, Virginia Tech uh, jump way up because Buzz Williams leaves, and then so we can't blame. So Ken Palm thinks, oh, Buzz Williams is valuable because uh, he left, and then he goes to Texas A&M, and they're a biggest decliner. So perhaps the Ken Palm formula this year overrated Buzz Williams a little bit. Um, mm, good point. That's, good point. Uh, I mean, that's one of the uh, that's one thing that jumps out. Uh, but yeah, uh, who the other teams there? Uh, Kentucky obviously had that brutal loss at home. Uh, Miami got destroyed by Connecticut. That's really bad. Uh, and then, uh, I mean, I mean, Connecticut's fine, but they they had they've, Connecticut's been very uneven. I know Hurley's probably going to do well there, but that's a bad loss. And then, uh, but not as bad as Kentucky against Evansville, which I feel like was just more undercovered by us and everybody in the college basketball world. Um, but yeah, uh, Buzz Williams. We'll see. I think he'll get his uh, sea legs under him at Texas A&M. Uh, but the SEC's going to be a little tough for him this year, I would think. Yeah, my only other thoughts are Nebraska first-year coach Fred Hoiberg. Some people thought they could be decent this year, uh, despite having a lot of new players. Of course, you remember last year they had all those seniors and was thought to be quite good under uh, under Coach Miles, and they ended up getting injured and falling off after a hot start. But uh, Nebraska's first game was a 19-point home loss to UC Riverside. Their second game was a double-overtime home loss to Southern Utah. Since then, they have won three games, but one, including um, an 11-point neutral site winning over aforementioned Kyle Smith. But um, they also barely beat Southern, 343rd in Ken Palm, at home in overtime. So um, other teams on this, uh, non-majors in the bottom 25, Central Connecticut State, which is coached by Danielle Marshall, is not doing well. They are one of the worst teams in the country. Harvard and Princeton, two um, generally successful Ivy League programs, have been off to mediocre starts. Harvard has had some injuries that have contributed to that. And then New Mexico State, uh, under Chris Jans, a team that's traditionally very good in the in the WAC, has um, has gotten off to a pretty weak start as well. Uh, yeah, Harvard's still the top-ranked team in the Ivy League at 95th in Kempom, but Yale and Penn who, of course, I think we'll talk about in a second, beat Providence. Uh, they are right on their heels. Uh, Penn off to a 3-2 and two start. And Columbia, 2-5. and five is a definitely, There's a definite... Uh, the heads of state in the Ivy League are Harvard, Yale, and Penn, and then there's a huge drop-off. Um, so we'll see. That'll mm -hmm. be an interesting race as we go on. Princeton, very disappointing. 0-4 to start the year. That is brutal for them. Uh, and Ken Palm says they're going to go 5-9 and nine in the Ivy League, which I wouldn't mind seeing, frankly. But they have played mm -hmm. a tough schedule, mm -hmm. though. And they have Arizona State uh, coming up tonight. So let's talk about some of the uh, the results that have happened um, since we last spoke about eight days ago. A lot has happened. We've mentioned several of them already, um, but we won't, we won't dwell on those. Um, 
Georgetown, something that struck out to me, Georgetown had that big win over Texas and then played quite well over against Duke. It's kind of surprising based on how poorly they had played to start the season. Uh, Baylor looked excellent in, uh, in, in its tournament in Myrtle Beach against Villanova, running through that tournament. That was a very good game. Both teams looked good, and obviously Villanova's without Brian Antoine still. He's played a few minutes um, the last few games, but not, um, not against Baylor, I don't believe. And, uh, and Baylor is still with kind of Tristan Clark Limited. Um, we also, I mean, and then Duke's undefeated still. We haven't talked about Duke that much. They're number one in the country. They're undefeated. They did beat um, Georgetown and Cal in that tournament, but they haven't really been challenged since that, that Kansas game. Uh, we can go through a lot of different, different directions here, but I want to know what's uh, intrigued you over the last week or so. Uh, the Arizona State-Virginia game intrigued me in the sense that Arizona State scored 19 straight points and still managed to lose the game, which is pretty hard to do. Um, I'm a little concerned about Virginia. Virginia, as great as their defense is, don't get me wrong, it's amazing. But as great as their defense is, I'm a little worried about their offense because obviously mm -hmm. they play so slow and they're going to need to hit their threes and they are shooting terribly, period, and even worse like from three-point land. They're 23.7% from three-point land. That's 344th in the country. Uh, they beat Arizona State 48-45. Um, they're 6-0, yes. Their defense is clearly the best in the country. They lead the nation in effective field goal percentage. Uh... But I do fear that uh, this team is ripe to get knocked off early in, or early in this early tournament if they just do not shoot the ball well because they've been mm -hmm. vulnerable in, in, uh, uh, in that, um, and they were kind of vulnerable in the Vermont game and then they were vulnerable in the Arizona State game. Their defense is locked down. Like the fact that they, they held Arizona State to just like nine points and whatever the stat was. They held, I think it was like, let's see what, seven points in the last ten minutes. And they... You, the fact that they were able to go 651 without scoring in the second half and still win the game is amazing. Uh, but I'd be a little worried about Virginia's offense. Um, and Duke, Vernon Carey Jr. is a big man, so he's kind of not the prototypical star of basketball that people think about these days. But he's been excellent. Dukes look very good. They beat Kansas uh, when Kansas turned the ball over a lot in the first game of the season. They have a big game against Michigan State coming up uh, next Tuesday. Uh, I don't think I think they're done with. I don't think we're really playing a uh, Thanksgiving tournament this year because they put back-to-back -back games in the Garden. Uh, but they've been very impressive and give them credit. And I think they'll be uh, dangerous uh, in the ACC. Uh, I think it's really Virginia, Carolina, and Duke seem like they're the classes, that, the class of the league there. Yeah, Virginia's offense ranked just 61st in the country this year with their defense by far and away first. They're. Um, you mentioned that shooting numbers. Casey Morsel, the, the really good freshman who was the MVP of that tournament in, um, in Connecticut, uh, where they knocked off Arizona State and UMass. He's only 3 for, three for 26, 3 for 26 on three-pointers. Tomas Waldetense, the junior college transfer, is 2 for 15. Uh, Mamdi Giquite is continuing to play well. Um, we we kind of touched on Michigan State's loss now, a second loss. They're the only team in the top six of Ken Palm with a loss right now, and they have two of them. Uh, they dropped from number one, and now Duke is number one in Ken Palm. Um, and in that game, they, they bounced back today with an eight-point win over Virginia Tech. Uh, sorry, over Georgia. But yesterday against Virginia Tech, they um, allowed Virginia Tech to score 1.11 points per possession. Part of that was 10 three-pointers. Landers Nolly, who is a freshman who was ruled academically ineligible last year for Virginia Tech, has been terrific. He scored 22 points. Cassius Winston was in foul trouble, uh, only played 22 minutes, and only scored seven points. Uh, it's not really been the season we expected from Cassius, and um, and in general, that I mean Virginia Tech's defense is not especially good. You would think Michigan State's offense would be uh, would be better than it has been uh, this season, and, and 
Um, even though I, I mean their offense is ranked first in Ken Palm, but it was not a first-ranked type of offensive performance against Vautech. Uh And it kind of points to a couple things we've noticed trend-wise. The RPI isn't really a thing anymore, but it, it's I think it's a good to look at the conference RPI to kind of see how leagues are doing and also what projections they might have for number of NCAA tournament bids. Um, and the Big Ten and the Big East are fifth, are sixth and fifth in um, conference RPI right now. Part of that is um, Michigan State and their performance for the Big Ten, and, and we've obviously seen Northwestern, my alma mater, lose to Radford and Merrimack, um, and other performances. Rutgers has had a bad start. And the Big East, again, the top-rated team, if the RPI was still a thing in the RPI from the Big East, is Butler at 35th. There's no Big East teams in the top 34 of the RPI. And, and it's not important for seeding or anything like that right now or, any, or in general, but it does show you they're not getting many quality wins and they have a lot of losses. Um, in fact, their non-conference winning percentage is, uh, is only fifth. In uh, college basketball, we can get into Providence a little bit. I uh, made the mistake of thinking I would stick around the Penn campus after class on Saturday to watch the Providence-Penn game. Uh, my wife made sure to check to the, the right bar with Fox Sports 2. I walked in. There were some other Penn students who walked in with me. I was thinking, hey, we're going to watch the Penn-Providence game. This would be great. They were watching college football instead, and then we had some fans come from the Penn Princeton football game, and they walked in. I was like, "Oh, you're here to watch the Penn Providence basketball nope. game?" They're like, "No, what? What?" Uh, so, but but Penn is pretty good. Um, they've had some uneven performances this year, um, but they played great against the Friars. Providence has now played pretty well all their games except for the two losses, but they now have I think two of the 50 biggest upsets of the season, losing to Northwestern by nine on the road and Penn by six, and so it, it makes one wonder. How good is uh, how good is Providence? Well, let's start with Penn. Jordan Dingle is a freshman. He was terrific. Played all 40 minutes, 19 points, uh, four assists. Um, he's one of the best freshmen in, in the conference in the Ivy League. Ryan Bentley had not been shooting well all season, but he made five threes and had 22 points against the Friars. And then A.J. Broder, who's uh, one of the best big men in the Ivy League, he scored uh, 17 points and had 10 rebounds, as well as a couple of blocks, um, and that was too much for the Friars, who didn't get good performance. A good performance from David Duke, only two points, and that was in garbage time. And he and Alpha Diallo were in foul trouble often uh, during the game in the second half. Um, and Providence, again, looking like a team whose offense is questionable. They scored less than a point per possession, again, um, and their offense is down to 51st in the country. And now they're, the bigger problem is not so much how well they've been playing. They're serving 32 in Ken Palm. They started the year 30th. It's not been, they haven't played that poorly. But now they have two bad losses out of conference, and they have to play kind of error-free ball the rest of, maybe even better than error-free ball the rest of the way, to make some like diving plays in the hole uh, in order to get back in, the, in a place where they can get into the NCAA tournament and potentially a good seed in that tournament. Yeah, Penn, Steve Donahue, who, of course, led Cornell to uh, the Sweet 16 in 2010. He's only had one season with a winning record in the Ivy League at Penn. This could change that, obviously. Um, it's a tricky loss to for Providence so to lose that game at home. Um, I did not watch that game, but I, I would be a little worried about Providence, just these results. Um, maybe I should just stop playing schools you've attended, Brendan. They can solve that problem. Yeah, I, so I, w I went to undergrad Northwestern, and Providence played poorly in that game and lost, and then I'm in grad school at Penn, and, um, yeah, they need to stop playing. Maybe they're going to feed the rest of the season. It's just I these mean, two games that were problematic. Yeah. You haven't attended DePaul, so DePaul's been pretty good, though. <laughs> Up to 63rd in Ken Yeah, Palm. DePaul has been good. It's undefeated yeah. still. DePaul Georgetown has played actually pretty well. Um, Xavier has a loss, but has played. Uh, Butler's been better than expected. They had a good win at Missouri, or I guess it was Kansas City by 11. Uh, yesterday, um, 
but they've t the other teams have taken some losses. Seton Hall could have beaten Michigan State, didn't. Villanova has that bad loss to Ohio State, and then also to Baylor. Um, Xavier lost to Florida. Marquette got blown out by Wisconsin and almost lost to – they were in a close game as Robert Morris, actually. Um, so there haven't been a lot of big wins, and there haven't been there have been some some bad losses. Um, so I'm a little bit the narrative when I listen to other podcasts, people talk that the Big East is really deep and really good, and maybe it is. It's still second in Ken Palm ratings, but the results right now have not been of a conference that you'd expect to be a top two or three conference in college basketball. And even if they are that good, it's just going to actually make it tougher for teams to make the state tournament because they're not going to have they're going to be beating up on each other in conference coming off of a non-conference where they haven't built up great resumes and then instead of having seven teams in the NCAA tournament you might have a bunch of teams with like bad records and end up with like only four teams in the NCAA tournament maybe five because of how they played in uh, yeah what's the biggest best win so far uh, we know uh, Butler beat Missouri Seton Hall lost to Michigan State Villanova has beaten who Miss uh, Sibby State Mississippi State. Yeah. Yeah. Georgetown beat Texas okay. on a neutral. Um, Xavier's, they beat Missouri also, but at home. Yeah, it might be Georgetown over Texas or, uh, yeah, it's not It's not been good. DePaul did win at Iowa. Uh, yeah, it's just, this is not, um, it's not been yeah, good. So. So. How about the Jayhawks? They've got a win under their belts. and uh, they, Well, they beat East Tennessee State, which is actually quite a decent win for them. And then they've got a win under their belts against Chaminade, and now they won't be – the road through the title in Maui will not go through Michigan State. So what are your thoughts on uh, on their upcoming Yeah, That's a big break for them. They have enough tough non-conference games. They didn't need the Michigan State game really to help out their resume. They, as I said, they play uh, Stanford and Villanova back-to-back -back on the road, uh, sandwiched around Christmas. Um, they have a Colorado game at home coming up on December 7th. Um, uh, they play BYU later tonight in Hawaii. First of all, apparently it's pronounced Shamanad, uh, at least the way Dave Pash said it last night on the uh, broadcast reunited with Bill Walton, ESPN. Uh, that was an interesting mm. experience to, to listen to. Mm. Um, you know, when the Silver Swords are playing the Jayhawks and the game gets out of hand, Bill Walton. Bill Walton will do that in a close game. So, uh, you know, they bounce back nicely from that turnover fest against Duke. They're still uh, 203rd in the country in turnover percentage. Um, but they've been playing a little bit better uh, of late. Obviously, they turned them over close to 30 times in uh, that game. Um, uh, since then, their turnover rate's been down. Then they still struggle 22%, 19%, 13%, uh, and 20%. Those are their uh, totals. So it's been a little bit uh, weird. Uh, oh, sorry, I was reading their defense there. Hold on. That makes more sense. 34% for Duke, then 14, 9, 20, and 18. So pretty much standard. Mm -hmm. uh, reminds me like the 2013 Elijah Johnson Ben McLemore era team with the turnover problems, um, but yeah, I think they'll uh, they'll be fine, and it'll be. I don't. I mean, I guess it would have been nice to play, to have a shot to play Michigan State tomorrow for the uh, Maui championship, but um, I don't think they're dying to have that happen. Well, let's. We have only a few minutes left here, so let's take a look at some of the upcoming tournaments. Um, the big tournament that has not started yet over Thanksgiving is the Battle for Atlantis, which uh, features the best first round game of any tournament. Um, which is Seton Hall, Oregon. The winner of that will play either Gonzaga or Southern Miss. The other side of the bracket is Michigan, Iowa State. Uh, and the winner of that will play the winner of UNC versus Alabama. Do you, do you have a, are you going to pick a I'll winner? I'll pick uh, Carolina just because they seem to be on the easier, slightly easier side of the bracket, though Michigan is no mm -hmm. walk in the park. Uh, and look, this is probably the best Thanksgiving tournament now, especially that we know that Michigan State got bounced. Um, you're going to have, a, if UNC makes the final, you're going to have a marquee final either against Gonzaga or Seton Hall, which maybe the best team in the Big East. Gonzaga's obviously very good. Uh, Cole Anthony's been amazing. Uh, Carolina might need some more support with him. 
uh, but this might be the best tournament. So Wednesday, Thursday, Friday is a little weird, uh, the timing-wise. I prefer the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday myself, but um, uh, yeah, this is a good tournament. So I like Carolina in this one. Yeah, Oregon has been quite good this year, and Seton Hall has been okay. Um, I think that it's actually an advantage to play Oregon first in the tournament because I think they're pretty hard to prepare for the way they play defense. So having some few days to prepare for that Oregon defense gives Seton Hall, I think, a better shot to win that game. Um, I think I'll pick Gonzaga to win. Um, I, I've always kind of been higher than higher on Gonzaga. Killian Tilly's back. He, he um, looks very good. And he, yeah, and so I think that that's a big part of it. But you're right, UNC's a, b a better road. Iowa State's been eh this year. Michigan's offense is still not great, although their defense should be good and they'll be tough. Alabama's been uh, not very good so far this year. Losses already to Rhode Island by a lot and uh, to Penn by one. Uh, but that's a team that still uh, is pretty dangerous with Nate Oates as the coach and a lot of talent, including Kyra Lewis. Um, so let's move on to a couple more tournaments, and then we'll wrap things up. Uh, the Wooden Legacy, I do hope to attend part of this on Friday. Providence is there uh, playing Long Beach State. Um, this is not the best field we've seen, especially because some of these major conference teams are down, well, especially, uh, I guess, Wake Forest being the one. Providence, Long Beach State, the winner plays the winner of Wake Forest College of Charleston. The other side is UCF Penn. We talked about Penn already, and Pepperdine, Arizona. Arizona, maybe coming this season, people thought Arizona and Providence were about as good as each other, but based on performance so far you have to give Arizona the clear edge they played each other in the semis of this tournament uh, about three years ago and Providence won um, other than those two teams you have some spoilers spoiler potential in Penn and College of Charleston and even Wake Forest has um, has played okay this year they have a, a good win against and Davidson. a great win against Columbia uh, yeah a big two-point home win against <laughs> Columbia uh, Danny Manny on the hot seat um, you don't, have to, you don't have to comment on that one, but maybe we'll give you actually a good tournament to comment on before we, we head out of here. Um, the, what is the next best tournament? I'm looking. The Orlando Invitational ha is a pretty good field. Davidson Marquette. Davidson a little bit disappointing this year, but uh, still uh, has some really good talent. John Axel Goodmanson and and, um, and another player's name I'm forgetting somehow. But anyway, I'll get back to that name in a second after I go through the rest of the field. Uh, the winner of Davidson Marquette plays the winner of USC Fairfield. And then the other side is Maryland, Temple, and Texas A&M, Harvard. Uh, any thoughts on that or any other tournaments if you don't want to talk about those games? Uh, no, Marquette got blown out by Wisconsin but beat Purdue. Purdue, obviously, one of the more disappointing teams to start off. So we'll see what Wojciechowski can do uh, in that tournament. And I don't really... I mean, this is yeah. I really, if you're going to watch college basketball this weekend, watch Maui through Wednesday, and then watch the uh, Atlantis tournament um, there. And then, if you're a Providence fan, maybe hope that they play Arizona and beat Arizona on Sunday there, because Arizona's been playing pretty well. In the Pac-12, we joke about. I know they had some bad losses. They're still doing pretty well. They were second in conference RPI, uh, and they've been mm -hmm. much better this year. So credit to them. And the top two biggest movers on our list of uh, biggest improvers in Ken Palm. Uh, yeah, this is a weird Thanksgiving for me. Usually I go to Rhode Island and I just kind of sit in the couch and watch college basketball for like three or four straight days, much to my wife's <laughs> chagrin. But I'm out here in L.A. with her family, and we have family things on Wednesday and Thursday and wedding on Friday. So I think I'll be – if there was a year to not spend watching college basketball for Thanksgiving, this might be the year because it doesn't seem like these fields are quite as good as in the past. Um, and – uh, so I think generally this time of year is like a time where I can kind of catch up and kind of get into my college basketball groove, and I'm, I might miss that this year because I'm out here. But hopefully uh, it will be some good games to watch. Yeah, for sure. Okay. 
Okay, well, that's it for episode 33 of the Double Bonus Podcast. I think we didn't introduce our handles or anything. At Double Bonus Pod, if you've gotten this far, uh, doublebonuspod.com. Um, on, and then uh, email at double bonus pod on Twitter. You can email us double bonus pod at gmail.com. And, uh, yeah. So if you listen, if you like it, rate it five stars at least or more, depending on the platform and their rating system, you leave comments. It'll help us in the algorithm to get from seven to nine listeners is what we're aiming for. Um, and then, uh, until next time, Tom, hope you have a great Thanksgiving. You too, Brenda. Enjoy that. Don't eat too much stuffing. It's highly... Uh, highly caloric because of all the carbs and that. That's true. Yeah, I try to avoid it, but it's still great. I'm in on stuffing. Okay. Tom is in on stuffing. That's, that's a good way to leave it. That's the name of the. That, that, that's the title of the episode, I think, and we'll leave it there. Uh, Needed a one. defensive rebound. It was Grady Eifert who secured it. Two point game. Jerome short. Back to Akite. A race for it. into the hands of Clark. He's got a chance to win it here. Up the front. It's Akite for the win. Yeah!